you grab your Bibles with me this morning, church, turn to the blessing of the Gospel of Luke. Turn today to verse 23 through 38 of Luke chapter 3. It is here that we encounter a unique stretch of testimony as Luke takes time to share Jesus' genealogy, the unique line from the very first man, Adam, all the way to Jesus, the last Adam. Looking back at one's lineage doesn't necessarily tell you anything about who that person is, but it does tell you a lot about what they're a part of, whether they like it or not. The infatuation of genealogy is one that is becoming more and more popular in our current day as digital resources and global databases become more and more accessible to us, updated all the time. To search for your ancestors or those who migrated here from other countries in prior generations, you used to have to physically go to places where names and logs were written on paper. Places like Ellis Island off the shores of New York City where many of our nation's immigrants came to our country years gone by by boat. In biblical times, written accounts of genealogy were helpful markers. It was a way to record and share one's ancestry. And genealogies played a critical role for the people of Israel for a number of reasons, as we see in Holy Scripture. Ancestry determined the division of the land of Canaan among the 12 tribes. It established the right to inheritance of property and all that went with one's estate. It formed the principle of kinsman redemption, the practice of a man who might be forced to sell his property and the relative's mandate to purchase it, keep it in the family. It played a big role in taxation. As we even recently saw a church in Luke chapter 1, where Joseph had to return to the land of his family, of his father in Bethlehem, to pay the taxes that he owed. It determined one's ability to serve as priest or not, according to the laws of old. Finally, with all of the prophecy and promise of the Messiah's coming from certain family lines, this record was most important to determine proper eligibility for this most important role among all mankind, the role of the Redeemer, of the Messiah. Church, it's really important that we all take seriously God's design to invest into future generations. The, the very principle of discipleship upon us, the commission the Lord has given us, the church, is an investment to pay it forward, to bless others with what we've been blessed with, to take the, the ways that we've been poured into and taught and matured in the faith and, and to disciple others for our future generation, those entrusted to our care to teach those who come after us the truth of God's word, to see them rise up, Lord willing, in faith, to live in righteousness so that the church continues the work of the Lord, the testimony of the gospel, until our good God calls it done. This is an important role each of us play. Even if you don't have children, even, even if 
Your children are grown and gone. You are a part of a family by which generational impact is happening here at Disciples Church. And that is a really critical part of your life. The work that's being done unto these things. Husbands, fathers, you are called to lead your wives and your children unto the things that the Lord has given you. Not just so you can get through the day or the week or the season, but so that you are intentionally investing into the next generation. For time is short. As we study in the coming midweek sessions in covenant theology, God said to Abraham, Genesis 17, 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Church, we're a part of that. No matter how good of a job or not your parents did, may our Lord be honored by this generation to steward what he has ordained to come after us well. It is truly a central part of our life and faith in this time and day. With that, let's consider Luke's account of genealogy of Christ. It says in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Consider with me for a moment those who interacted with Jesus up until this point. In brief, uh, those surrounding his birth in Bethlehem, his dedication in Jerusalem at six weeks old, and the interaction among some of the Jewish teachers, the caravan that his family traveled with at the age of 12. All of those interactions, church, were with really essentially just a few people who knew that Jesus was the Messiah. There were no large crowds who gathered to hear that he was the Messiah. Not until now, not until Jesus' baptism, as we studied last week, the heavenly confirmation of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Until now, for the last 30 years of Jesus' life on earth, God in, God in flesh has been on earth, incarnate and growing in human body, mind, and form in his human nature. For 30 years, Christ has been in true obscurity. And now at the age of 30, God has ordained that like those of old, it was time for his public ministry and work to begin. It's noteworthy that the Lord ordains a number of key biblical figures to go to work in a primary way in their ministry at this age of 30. Um, we've, we've seen as of late this be true of not only Jesus now, but also of John the Baptist. Remember, it was just a number of months, if not a year older. 
who has been at work just prior to Jesus in his public ministry. Same thing, in obscurity, in the wilderness, until it was time, until he reached that age, until that was the Lord's time for him to go and go to work. 30 was the age required for the priesthood, as we read in Numbers 4.3. Joseph was 30 when he began his work for Pharaoh in Genesis 41. David was 30 when he began to rule as king, 2 Samuel. Ezekiel was called to his ministry at the age of 30. This was even God's timing in my life. My own testimony, at the age of 30, my pastoral career started in 1999 as a youth minister. Took a major turn in 2007, when by God's sovereign work in the life of our church, I handed the reins to one of my longtime disciples to take over youth ministry and began my preaching ministry in our church in 2008 in a new community we had formed called the Great Room Community. That was also the beginning of our much-needed reformation in our church. I can tell you that when you're in your 20s, and I remember this very, very clearly, you feel passionate about life and your call to lead and make an impact on the world around you. And in that youthfulness, it was very hard to be patient, to wait on God's good timing. I can't imagine how much more this was the case for John the Baptist, given his assignment. For Jesus as well, even more. Church, how good it is that we learn to wait on the Lord. For his timing is always better than ours the psalmist said it well wait for the Lord be strong let your heart take courage wait for the Lord Psalm 27 14 with that let's turn to Luke's account of Jesus genealogy Jesus when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age being the son as was supposed of Joseph the, word, the words here, as was supposed, is an important clarity. What is Luke trying to convey? He's pointing to the fact that as far as people knew or could see on the outside, it looked as if Jesus was Joseph's biological son. As it was supposed, as it was understood generally. But we know, because Scripture tells us of the details of Jesus' conception that he is not the biological son of Joseph. He was supernaturally conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the angel told Mary in Luke 1, 30-35. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord... God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son 
of God. Praise God for his perfect plan and work in this detail. Jesus is not born of the seed of Adam, which means he is not given the original sin of Adam. Why? Why was this so essential? So that Jesus could be our spotless lamb. We know that Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, but to his peers, they don't know this, so as was supposed. But notice with me, Luke is standing on and acknowledging that Jesus is Joseph's son. Right? Son of Joseph. The, 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 the genealogical line begins here. And this is true. Jesus is Joseph's son, not by blood, but by adoption. This is the testimony of his legal belonging, already stated in Luke 1.27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Joseph is of the house of David. This is important because even though Jesus is not conceived from Joseph, instead the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, he is considered Joseph's son by the fact that Mary is his betrothed wife, and therefore Jesus is attributed to being of the house of David. This is significant because the promised Messiah was foretold by the prophets of old to come from the house of David. In Matthew's gospel, we're given a detailed lineage of Jesus by which establishes him as Joseph's legal heir and therefore one who can rightfully claim the throne of David. This is the testimony of scripture. What I love about this is the fact that, once again, adoption is not a second-rate way by which we become family. For it is how Jesus belongs to Joseph. It is how we who are redeemed belong to God the Father because of Christ. Amen and amen. Now, it's helpful to know that Luke's genealogy of Jesus, as we see here in today's text, is different than Matthew's account in his gospel. If you look to the very first pages of Matthew's gospel, you see it there. A couple distinctions between the two to help you quickly have some understanding of these things. First, Luke's gospel account of Jesus' genealogy starts with Jesus and works its way back to Adam. Matthew's starts with Abraham and goes forward to Jesus. Second distinction between the two, Matthew divides his into three periods of 14 generations. Luke's list is not as organized, but it does seem to draw on some of the Old Testament genealogies that we read in Genesis 10 and 11 and 1 Chronicles 1 through 3. Third, Luke provides 57 names in his list, Matthew only 41 names. Neither of these are considered comprehensive church, but in keeping with the tradition of the Jewish customs of reporting genealogies, this was considered acceptable. Neither genealogy was trying to be exhaustive, but rather a compressed overview in an effort to highlight Jesus' connection to the promises of God of old. Fourth, Matthew list includes five women, including Mary. Luke's list includes no women. Fifth, they track to the same heads of families 
along the way, but sometimes through different sons. This is an interesting point. For example, in Luke's account, we see Jesus traced through Nathan, the son of David. But in Matthew's account, we see Jesus traced through Solomon, the son of David. Now, some will try to cry foul and say, so which is it? Only one of those can be the father, right? Now, one of the ways we're helped in this church is in a better understanding of our English translations of the word son here in these lists as we read it. It is not meant to convey this specificity of of father-son relationship distinctly, but more specifically, it is to convey the relative of. So basically, in the family of is the goal here. The use of son is not trying to be that specific. It's important to understand that these are not meant to be hard and fast list of father-son heritage, but family to family. Some theologians have, have believed that one of these lines traces more through Mary's lineage and the other David's. Uh, there's also much disagreement of that, and, and I just don't think it's a needed end place to land. Um, it's also helpful to rest in the fact that the scholars of old who labor in great detail over these things have solidified the needed details of lineage of the Messiah to the degree that God ordains what we have, right? This is God's word. This is what he chose to reveal. And so in many ways, when we run into scripture in places like this, it's important that our faith trusts the Lord. The different gospel accounts that we see on a number of levels who testify the same event but from different perspectives doesn't necessarily look to have contradicting facts, but it's God's way to bring a more round view of the thing, different angles. And where there's gaps, there's misunderstandings, we trust the Lord who's sovereign and perfect in his ways. We must rest in the perfection of God and his ability to keep the line perfectly established just as he covenanted he would. Why can we rest so solid in that fact? Because God is perfect. And if he erred here, the whole thing's broke down, right? So we rest in our confidence in the character of God's perfection. That he is unchanging in these things. In these, we don't aim to get overly caught up in the knowability of all these details or the details laid out of these genealogies. What we do aim to do is very important, and it's twofold. The twofold aim of this genealogical account of Jesus is, is these. Number one, to establish that Jesus is indeed of the royal messianic line. And second, is Jesus' connection to the human race, specifically as given here in Luke's genealogy. Matthew's account and genealogy only goes to Abraham, the father of Israel. Luke's account goes past Abraham all the way to Adam, mankind's federal head. In this, Luke is taking us beyond Jesus' Jewish heritage and encompassing the entire human race by going all the way back to Adam. This is important, church, because Jesus is not just the hope of the Jews. He is the hope of fallen mankind, is he not? 
Remember that Luke is writing his gospel to Theophilus and, in, and largely a Gentile audience, whereas Matthew's gospel is written to a Jewish audience. There also in lies some of the focus of these details as to who is reading those gospel accounts. Therefore, the testimony of Jesus' lineage going all the way back to Adam and not just to Abraham is Luke's way of showing us that Christ came not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. For a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Back to our passage. Luke continues down the ancestral line. The list of names starting with Joseph's father is largely unknown figures, as you're about to hear. A few of them having specific and passing mention elsewhere in the Old Testament narrative. It's not until we reach David's name that we hit a milestone of true significant noteworthiness. Consider these names with me. Luke chapter 3, 23, continuing where we left off. The son of Heli, the son of Madoch, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janiai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semaain, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Rezna, the son of Jerob Abel, the son of Sheltal, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of El Medem, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melah, the son of Mana, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Let's pause there. Here's David, critical name to be included in this, in the fact that God covenanted that the Messiah would come from David's legal lineage. Luke makes much of this connection elsewhere in his writings because it was so absolutely important that the Messiah came from the line of David. Continuing, the son of Jesse. If you remember, church, Jesse is David's father, who, if you remember, came from the tribe of Judah and lived in Bethlehem. Continuing, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. And then we see the son of Jacob. 
Church, this is the famous Jacob, son of Isaac and Rebekah, brother to Esau. Later renamed Israel, as we see in Genesis 35.10, the 12 tribes of Israel take their names from his 12 sons. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Continuing, the son of Isaac. Church, this is the long-awaited son of Abraham and Sarah, the first of Abraham's promised offspring in the covenant that God made with Abraham. Next, the son of, of Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch church of Israel, the federal head with whom God made his old covenant. Be teaching on that in midweek here in just a couple weeks. Continuing, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Ru, the son of Pelag, the son of Ebmer, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan. Notice with me here, church, moving through Noah, who God also made his covenant with after bringing judgment of wrath to the entire human race, all of the world, receives the wrath of God in the flood of our creation. Only one man and his family chosen by God to survive it. God ordained to preserve Noah and his family to carry on the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15. That of the seed, the woman's seed would rise a redeemer. The seed of the woman must produce the Redeemer to defeat sin and death on behalf of God's chosen people. This is, as we saw in our first covenant lesson, God fulfilling the covenant of redemption by which all of this creation is set for his holy purpose to redeem his people, for his glory and our good. Continuing, Son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Finally, we find our way to Adam, who is the first man made in the image of God. A son of God by creation, not by adoption. Consider with me for a moment the account of Adam's creation and the covenant God made with him. This was the focus of last week's midweek teaching. Genesis 2, 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens brought and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We see here the covenant that God made with Adam. Adam, who served the critical role of being the federal head of the human race. In this most important assignment of God, Adam is given some specific responsibilities, as we see laid out here. Also adding Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When we take all of this that the Lord gave to Adam to do, we see four primary areas of responsibility. Number one, he gave Adam a work to do, to work the garden and take care of it. He also gave Adam a command to obey, to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. He also gave the man a woman to love, a helper suitable for him, they too became one flesh. Finally, he gave the man a legacy to pass on, commanded to be fruitful and to multiply. As we've studied just this last week at midweek, Adam disobeyed God. And so Adam failed this most important test and responsibility. And as a result, mankind would reap the consequences of our federal head. The consequence of the fall of the first man, Adam, meant that every person born into the world by the seed of man is morally corrupt and spiritually dead. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. As a result, church, all human beings incur physical, spiritual, and eternal death, which is separation from God because of sin. Adam and Eve were punished with immediate spiritual death, eventual physical death, banishment from Eden, loss of fellowship with God. Adam was cursed to, have the, to sweat hard in his work. Eve was cursed with labor pains and childbirth, the tendency to rebel against her husband, her head, Adam. The stark reality is this, church. God's perfect wrath sits on all sinners, no matter how many sins we've committed or of what kind. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We earn death because of sin. Consequently, all human beings are born sinful by nature and then by practice, which enslaves man to the fleeting pleasures of self-rule and sin, leaving us totally depraved in every aspect of our being. 
The chief idea of federal headship is that Adam, when Adam sinned, it was counted for all of us. His fall was our fall. When God punished Adam by taking away his original righteousness, we were all likewise punished. The curse of the fall affects on us. Not only was Adam then declared to make his living by the sweat of his brow, but that is true of all of us as well. Not only was Eve consigned to having pain in childbirth and struggle with the authority over her, but that is the penalty of the fall on all women of all generations. God ordained that Adam act on behalf of all people when he was in the garden. So Adam's choice to sin means that we are brought forth under the penalty of that sin. His sin is imputed or credited to us. Right? Imputation, to attribute or ascribe or credit. Imputation speaks of what we are credited, accredited with. Understand a very important point in this. We, mankind, were most accurately represented by Adam. To be sure we were best represented, God did not give the choice of who we wanted to be our representative to us. How do we know he was our best representative? Because he was God's choice. God who is perfect. When God chooses our representative, he does so perfectly. His choice is infallible. Adam represented me infallibly. Not because he was infallible, but because God is infallible. Because of God's perfection. We can never argue that Adam was a poor choice to represent us. That is a critique of the perfect God. The assumption many of us make in our arrogance and our sin, when we're struggling with the reality of the fall of our federal head sin, is we think, if I would have only been there, somehow we would have made a different or better choice. Such an assumption is just not possible considering the character of God. God doesn't make mistakes. His choice of our representative is greater than our choice of our own. The result of Adam's fall is that mankind has no hope or power to restore or save oneself apart from God's own gracious intervention. We call this total depravity. In man's natural state, he can do nothing that honors God, has no will that longs for God apart from any grace exerted by God to transform man. We have no hope. We have no power. No ability to restore or save ourselves to a right standing with God. This reality of our sin leaves us utterly desperate, church, for the long-anticipated second Adam. Martin Luther wrote about him this way, Since all of us, born in sin and God's enemies, have earned nothing but eternal wrath and hell, so that everything we are and can do is damned, and therefore, 
is no help or way of getting out of this predicament. Therefore, another man had to step into our place, namely Jesus Christ, God and man, and had to render satisfaction and make payment for sin through his suffering and death. Because the first Adam failed and fell, all of us failed and fell with him. But the good news is, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has come and he did not fail. Praise God. He accomplished all that was needed for our salvation, church, perfectly. See with me this morning the good news of the second Adam, Jesus God told Adam and Eve to obey him regarding a tree in the middle of the garden, right? To not eat of it. But they did eat of it, denied God and chose death. We have all disobeyed God in so many ways. See with me, church, that Jesus came as well to be obedient about a tree. That tree is the cross of Calvary. Philippians 2, 5-8 Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Notice something very profound with me here. Notice that the opposite happened to Jesus. In obeying God the Father and fulfilling his mission, Jesus dies. Adam died for his disobedience. Jesus died for his obedience. Why? He willingly stepped into the heart of our battle so that he could win you and me to life. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See how Adam wildly failed all four responsibilities that God gave him to do. But in the second Adam, we see a different result completely. Jesus, who is the last Adam, is essentially given the same four responsibilities. A work to do. What is that work? Take on flesh, live without sin, and redeem God's chosen people, which he did perfectly. Number two, a will to obey. The united will of the Holy Godhead set forth in the covenant of redemption before time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreeing wholeheartedly, covenanting between the three Think about that. The will and the plan of the covenant of redemption. He saw it through perfectly. Number three, the Lord Jesus was given a woman to love. Who, who is she? The church. His bride. You and me. And he has loved us perfectly number four a legacy to pass on 
the making and multiplying of disciples unto the redemption of the elect in every nation until all of his are saved. And he calls it done. Oh, how this is good news, church. Paul said it so well. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Also his second letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him, Jesus, the second Adam, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, die for us, why? So that in him, in Jesus alone, we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God that he made Christ who was sinless to take on our sin, our punishment, and die for us. Charles Hodge says it well. There is probably no passage in the scriptures in which the doctrine of justification is more concisely or clearly stated than this. Our sins were imputed to Christ. And his righteousness was imputed to us, credited to us. He bore our sins, and we are clothed in his righteousness. Imputation speaks of what I am credited. The righteousness I am judged by in Christ is not mine. It is Jesus' righteousness. The veil or the clothing that God sees on me is Christ, his righteousness, his perfection. It's not infused into me and then performed by me. No, it's imputed. It's laid upon me like a garment. Every human church will be represented by one of these two Adams. Adam and Christ. The first Adam and the last Adam. They stand as two great figures at the entrance of two very different realities. Adam and Jesus represent two different generals who lead two very different armies. The first Adam, a man set on a natural course based on instinct, devoid of transcendent meaning, the second Adam, Jesus, a man empowered by God, dependent on Christ, not flesh, a manhood full of transcendent meaning. Thank God for the man, Jesus Christ. Thank God for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the second Adam. Jesus, who left his throne in heaven where he rules and reigns as king of kings and lord of lords, to come to earth and take on the life of a servant, to do his work perfectly, 
to ascend back to the right hand of the Father. What an amazing testimony we have to give to a dead and dark world. He humbly and painfully took on our deserved wrath so that we might have eternal life with God and be empowered to serve him on the mission that he's given us today for his glory. Church, see with me. Luke's main purpose in this genealogy is not found in the details. It's found in the tether between the first Adam and the second Adam. Luke goes back to Adam to show us the fullness of what Christ came to do for a people to redeem of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and not just to the Jews. Church, see with me that God promised the successful ministry of the second at the fall. It was his first words. Genesis 3.15. And he has delivered on his promise. The last Adam has come. And he is making all things new. To him we give glory and honor and praise now and forevermore. Pray with me. Father, we rejoice in the real blessing of this passage, in the wonder of these truths, sometimes reading some of these details, we can miss or skip through much of what you're doing globally in these things. We talked earlier about patience and waiting on the Lord. I continue to be very captured by the reality of generations and generations and generations of mankind waiting for the second Adam. And yet you, who are outside of time, worked in time in, these, in this creation perfectly through all of those generations, all of the federal heads that you covenanted with unto Christ, unto a new covenant that we rejoice to be part of in Christ. It is in Christ alone that we know you, that we have you, that we will enjoy you forever. It is your holy and sovereign work in these things that we humbly come to you now with praise and worship and adoration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.